Kira and welcome to the NZMSA Politics Focus podcast. My name is Mike Peebles and I'm a Wellington rep on the New Zealand Medical Student Association. I'm also one of the coordinators for NZMSA's Politics Focus Month. This August, we're aiming to inform our members about political issues and help you guys to make an informed vote later this year. Part of how we're doing this is interviewing members of Parliament to find out what they and their parties stand for. I start off this podcast series with an interview with Tracy Martin, Member of Parliament for New Zealand First. But first, a little about New Zealand First. New Zealand First was founded by ex-National Minister Winston Peters. They have been in government twice, firstly in 1996 in coalition with the National Government, and secondly in 2005 in coalition with the Labour Party. Their policies generally take an approach of New Zealanders first, for instance in the job market. They sit roughly in the middle of the left and right spectrum, and are expected to hold the balance of power in the upcoming election, supporting either a national or a Labour-led coalition. I'll let Tracy take it from here to explain what New Zealand First are about. Thanks so much, Tracy, for speaking to me. It's you know, an honour, first of all, just to be in this building. I'm a bit of a politics nerd, so oh, it's you really? know, very... It is quite exciting. Cool. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us and help us inform our members about you know, political issues in New Zealand First in particular. So if you just want to start off by telling us a bit about yourself and sure. what you do in okay. this building. Um, so my name's Tracy Martin. Right now I'm the education spokesperson, the spokesperson for women for broadcasting, communications and IT. I'm in my second term in Parliament, so I came back in in uh, 2011 when New Zealand First returned after three years um, in the wilderness. Mm. I've been involved with New Zealand First since its inception in 1993 through mm. uh, supporting my mother, predominantly Anne Martin, who has been the president but is also now the party secretary, um, and then ran for as a candidate for the first time in 2008 against mm. Lockwood Smith and the Rodney electorate. Gotcha. Um, I've been a stay-at-home parent for 15 years before coming to Parliament. Mm-hmm. I'm the mother of three children, married yeah. to a winemaker, um, and love dogs. Oh. There you go. Interesting way facts. <laughs> I'm quite interested to hear a bit about like your story of coming into Parliament, because it mm. sounds like you've had a lot of involvement with the party for quite a long time, so I suppose you must have quite a unique insight in the history mm. of New Zealand first and... Yeah, that. yeah, particularly the the sort of the years between two thousand and eight and twenty eleven. Mm. So, um, as I say, my mum, um, because of what happened in the nineteen nineties between National and Labour, she mm. originally she actually was a supporter on East Coast Bays of Gary Knapp for social credit when okay. um, when they won the seat, and then um, after that switched in ninety three to New Zealand First. So um, I have a deep distrust of both National and Labour, which <laughs> means they've never been sort of options for me to look at. Mm. Um, and I'm also an incredibly opinionated person. So when 2008 came along, there were a couple of pieces of legislation that I didn't feel our representative represented us on. Mm -hmm. And so when I was asked to be a candidate, I said, yes, I would. Not Mm. because I thought I would come to Parliament, but because I I was annoyed enough that I thought I want to actually um, sort of articulate New Zealand First position on that. Mm. Um, And then when we weren't in Parliament um, in 2008... I don't know if anybody knows this, but you basically get three weeks to get out. Oh, wow. Yeah, so boxes show up from buildings. You have to dump all your stuff in boxes or in the shredding bin, and then you've got to be gone within three weeks' time. So I think it was between 34 and 54 boxes showed up at my home in Walkworth um, just before the end of 2008 after New Zealand First didn't meet the threshold. Mm. 
Mm. Can you tell me a bit about those pieces of legislation that got you, I suppose, fired up? Sure. First one was the anti-smacking bill, mm-hmm. and the second one was prostitution law reform bill. Okay. So, and it's actually not the pieces of legislation themselves. It's yeah. the fact that I believe the word representative means that if I'm a representative, my my opinion comes second to the people that I actually said I'll represent your view, and gotcha. that's the majority view of the electorate. Mm-hmm. And the, the electorate that I was in had asked Lockwood Smith to vote against those two pieces of legislation, and mm-hmm. he voted for them. Right, I see. So it was that it was that concept of being a representative that really annoyed well, me. Up. Yeah, mm. yeah very good. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit more about New Zealand First and the current day? Like, what do you feel the party stands for? I think it stands for what it originally stood for back in 1993. I mean, you know, there's 15 founding principles. Number one is that we'll put New Zealanders first. And... What that means, some people think that means that we're isolationist or we're going to, um, if you're not a New Zealander, then we're we're absolutely opposed to who you are. Mm. But what it means is that all your decisions must be based not on a globalist view, but on a view of how do we work inside the global environment, Mm. but at the same time protect the interests of our own people. Mm. Um, And it has been titled actually the new global global movement, a little bit of what Brexit's talking about. We want to trade with people but we do put our own people in their working conditions and their infrastructure in that first. That makes sense. Yeah, so it, the, the founding principles haven't changed. Yeah. So perhaps it would be fair to say that it was born out of a resistance to the liberalisation of the economy that happened in the 80s and early 90s. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly where it grew out yeah. of. So it grew out of the, the concept of globalisation that there would be sort of no, no borders, no countries, and that... Um, there's a great book that Winston got me to read, and it talks about nowhere people and somewhere people. Yeah. Right? And the nowhere people are the people who are quite mobile. They're, they've got the money, they've got the education, they've got the, the wherewithal to move around the planet, and they'll do all right. Mm. And then there's the somewhere people who actually want to belong to communities, they mm. don't have the same mobility. And, you know, I think Brexit is a good example of a, ser- a lot of politicians that said to those people, actually, you don't count. You have mm. to become a nowhere person or you're a racist or you're a this or you're a protectionist or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and that is all straight out of the 90s, you know. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting. Um, and I suppose it's quite interesting because Winston himself was originally a national MP and then um, jumped, you know, created his yeah. own party and so on. But you've, in the history of New Zealand first, it supported both Labour and national governments. Mm. Do you have a sort of feeling, how would you describe yourselves as being in the political left and right spectrum. Right. And, and I think that's what I like about the New Zealand First Caucus, because you have to realise, when I go to public meetings, National Party supporters come over and say to me, you're in the wrong party. <laughs> Labour Party supporters come over and say, you're in the wrong party. Green Party supporters come over and say, you're in the wrong party. And that's what I like about the New Zealand First Caucus. First of all, every, every piece of um, policy, every piece of legislation comes to the caucus. Mm-hmm. Those who think I, live, I work in a dictatorship could yes. not be more mistaken. Mm-hmm. And so we, we actually have quite robust conversation because we have some people who are more right on some issues. We have some people who are extreme left. Um, but overall, what I think we come out with is a common sense sort of practical solution or position mm-hmm. that we believe is beneficial to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So it's not driven either from, well, we're right or we're left. Yeah. It's, it's a combination of those That's things. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and I feel like you touched on a wee myth about New Zealand First there, mm. and I'd like to explore a few of those myths, but the first one being that it's Winston Peters' party. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the reality is, okay, we haven't we haven't needed to change our leader, yeah, and that's become a criticism of us. I mean, yeah. it's a criticism of the Labour Party that they've changed theirs too much. There's yeah. a criticism of the of um, the the national government, perhaps, or national party when you know Jim Bolger is knifed by um, Jenny Shipley. Mm. We haven't had any of that, no, um, and we're criticised for it. Mm. Um, there are times when the Right Honourable Winston Peters is so. Um, what would I say, democratic, yeah. that it's quite annoying uh, from the perspective that, you know, he will, he will absolutely, I've seen, heard him say in caucus, if people take different views, that's absolutely fine, yeah. um, but let's talk it through until we can find the place that our, our supporters would want us to take. Right, sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and he's also said, I won't have anybody leave here and vote against their conscience. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's certainly not a dictatorship. Mm. Um, I think it's just, it's one of those things that uh, people like to try and throw at us because it, what else are they going to criticise us for, I mm. suppose? You know, it, fit, it fits us into a box. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I suppose one of those other myths is, you know, the fact that you, you are about putting New Zealanders first means that you are seen by some as being anti-immigration. Mm. Um, can mm. you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, 15 pounding principle number eight, if I'm right, actually says... And I can read it. Uh, whilst the country will always need a percentage of immigration, we will not use it as an mm. excuse not to train, employ, and educate our own. That makes sense. That's our immigration policy. Mm. So, um, so we're not against immigration. We're against unplanned immigration. Mm. And once it wasn't that long ago. I think it was around 2005. We called for a population plan. So mm. what we said was, and it wasn't where are these people coming from and who were these people. It was how many. Mm. So how many people does this country think it can sustain and keep a standard of living that we believe is acceptable for all of our citizens? Mm. So that probably more clearly articulates mm. New Zealand First Immigration Policy. And I also, one of the things I like to do, because I'm supposed to fit in a little box here, um, <laughs> so my family is, my mother was whangai, she lost her mother at two years old, she was whangai by Ngāti, uh, Maud Mohi of Ngāti Kahununu. Mm. My sister's children are um, seventh generation New Zealand Parker, third generation New Zealand Chinese. Mm. My sister in law and her family are Cook Island Rarotong. Mm. Uh, do you see what I mean? Like, yeah, we yeah. are a New Zealand family. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, so, you know, the box is a silly box. Yeah. yeah. It is a, I suppose New Zealand is a, and is becoming a diverse country. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it is certainly more diverse than it was before. But let's remember, the, Chi the New Zealand Chinese community has been here since the 1840s. Yes, absolutely. They're just not written in our history and taught mm. um, enough in our schools that absolutely. enough people know that. That's so you've true. got the, the, you know, the, um, the really tried and true New Zealand Chinese community, and you've got a new Chinese community, mm. which, which has come in in such mass that actually we're not serving them very well, particularly the older ones, I mm. think. You know, a lot of depression and isolation among some of those older Chinese. Absolutely. That makes sense. Mm. I suppose there is an argument amongst some people that New Zealand needs, in some ways, because we've got the baby boomer generation going through and they're going to be, a, I suppose, a very expensive generation, for mm. a better word, when they retire. There are some people that would argue that we need more immigration to support that and yeah. create a tax base. But No, that's, that's true. I mean, you've got, you can't get away from it. We've got an ageing population. But mm. um, strangely enough, if our immigration settings were right, why is our population still continuing to age? It's not balancing out. No, that's so, true. And if you have a look, I was going through all the work visas recently because I'm doing some work around international students and holiday work visas and so on and so forth. Mm. And the number of 50-year-olds um, or 49-year-olds that are actually coming into the country on work visas, mm. well, that's the wrong end of the scale. I get mm. that they have the skills we want, 
Yeah. But actually, we want to be bringing in 20, 25-year-olds yeah. who will then have their children here, who will then mm. connect to the country and commit to the nation. Yeah. And that would lower our age demographic. Mm. So our settings are wrong, you see, and that's mm. because it's just, well... We'll open the, well, yeah. it's not 100%, we'll just open the door. It's not like the borders of Europe, but it is very open at the moment yeah. without targeting. That mm. makes sense. Can you describe a little bit what three years of saying New Zealand First does well in the next election, which mm. polling you know, suggests you probably are going to do quite well. Mm. What does New Zealand First in government after the election look like? Um, well, I hope it looks like it's leading it. Um, <laughs> from I'd have to, I'd have to um, sort of, Stick into my portfolio area. So, yeah. right? so if we have major influence after the um, after the election this year, I would I would hope that after three years, what we've got is with our with regard to our upfront investment tertiary policy that we've got a major shift towards workforce planning, better support for our student body, e.g. through universal student allowance, through greater access to the accommodation supplement, that we've got young people going into internships and apprenticeships and universities and wānanga, knowing why they're going there Mm. (laughs) um, and why they're studying that. Mm. Um, And that we're also then retaining those skills um, inside New Zealand Mm. and removing that that debt, the financial debt that they're, they're burdened with now. Mm. Um, I'd like to think that um, with regard to our women's policy, I'm doing quite a bit of work around... I'm I'm tired of spending years and years and years of my life talking about women being equal in the workforce, and I'm actually spending a lot of work on... I'm spending a lot of time on policy trying to make men equal at home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, others are working in that space, and Mm. I'm trying to work in the space, well, how can we make men feel as comfortable at home and being at home as... You know, we have made women in the workforce to a certain extent. And also in the domestic violence space, I'd like to see men better supported um, around services that can support them to change their behaviours, uh, whereas at the moment there's a greater sort of focus on victims mm. and supporting victims. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not talking about taking away from them, I'm talking yeah. about changing behaviours by supporting men or the perpetrators of that violence. A sort of addition rather than a yeah, yeah. shift of Yeah, certainly, yeah. Because um, the, the amount of money that it costs us downstream, domestic violence, mm. it, it makes a lot of sense to front-end that spend and actually put some more... The Gundy Navas House over in South Auckland is a brilliant model of what I'd mm. like to see available for men removed by safety orders. Mm. That makes sense. Mm. Do you feel that what New Zealand First could achieve and would achieve in, say, a coalition government would be different depending on if you were supporting like a Labour-led versus mm. a national-led government? Um, it, it has to be. There's no yeah. feeling about it. It just has to be because philosophically they're different. Mm. But So the first goal, and I, I don't know whether people understand that, the first goal that, that Winston has articulated is this is a three-horse race. Yeah. Our goal, it is highly possible with our current polling yeah. and with the polling of some other political parties that New Zealand first might lead the next government. Right. All right. Now, people don't. The media doesn't ever report that that's a possibility, but mm. it is a possibility. Mm. Um, so then, the next thing is, let's say that you um, you've got um, a situation where you're in the majority is the majority of the votes gone to the right, or a combination of the majority of the votes gone to the left. Mm. The the negotiations would be completely different. Absolutely. Same same way they were in '96. Same mm. way they were in 2005. Mm. Um, because philosophically there are some things that, let's just take upfront investment um, mm. of our tertiary policy. National does not believe that young New Zealanders should be 100% supported by the state in their education post-secondary school. Mm. Labour does. They just don't go far enough. Mm. 
So you see, like, we're not going to get that over the line if we have to negotiate that this way, but yeah. we might get it over the line if we have to negotiate it that way. That makes sense. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and you know, and you've got Peter Dunn who believes that students shouldn't have to pay for their education, but they should borrow for their living costs. Okay. Māori Party says that they'd like to get to free education, but they don't think it's possible. Mm. So, yeah. Depends who you're at the table with. Absolutely. Now that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why you can't... People continue to ask, who will you go with, who will you go with? <laughs> well, how do you know yeah. until the day after... Well, actually two weeks after. Yes. But the day after, if it's a really good, really strong outcome, you'll, you'll um, get a pretty, pretty good picture, hopefully. That makes sense. Mm. I suppose you say, like, a three-horse race, so you're picturing that as you... National and Labour, do you think the Greens factor into that at all? Oh, no, they do. Yeah. They do. I mean, you know, one of the other sort of goals of New Zealand First is to knock them down into fourth place. <laughs> um, but they know that. I mean, you know, the yeah, Greens yeah. and New Zealand First, we know what our situation is. We mm. know what, you know, you've got um, sort of first-tier goals and second-tier goals. Makes sense, yeah. Um, and and the, the reality is, in politics, you're trying to gain as much influence as possible. Mm. Um you know, the, the worst outcome probably for both New Zealand First and the Greens is yeah. to be in a situation similar to ACT and United Future and the Māori Party. Yeah. You know, because then they just play you off against each other. Yeah. Um, of course, nobody assumes that New Zealand First and the Greens can't work together on some stuff. Mm. Yeah, which I is. work together with Catherine Delahunty on education all the time. Mm. Work together with Chris Hipkins all the time. Mm. Uh, get on very well with Todd Muller on the National Party side. So mm. it's not as clear as people would like yeah. it to be. I remember presenting to select committee a while ago and being almost surprised that people weren't, you know, going for each other's throats. Yeah, yeah. But it is relatively cool. Oh, it, it's very collegial. Yeah. Um, I mean, we just believe. I mean, look, I sit on education and science, and whenever anybody raises charter schools, mm. there's a clear divide um, yeah. between, you know, the government benches and our benches. Mm. Um, but but generally, no. In mm. inside that room, more often than not, we work for the betterment of New Zealand. That's mm. the that's the strength of the select committee process. Yeah, mm. that makes sense. Um, so obviously I'm here from the New Zealand Medical Students Association, so I suppose what I want to talk about now is why do you think New Zealand medical students as a group would mm. be well served voting for New Zealand First? Well, I think it's I think it's really around the, um, the UFI or the Upfront Investment Tertiary Policy. Mm. Um, and why I think that is, first of all, because of the workforce planning, mm -hmm. which means that um, we would be requiring all industry bodies to actually do five-year projections, sorry, five-year planning with 20-year projections, mm -hmm. which means that we'll know what workforce we need. Um, we, the, all the places that we require would be 100% funded for the period of time that it takes to train. Mm -hmm. um, that would not be a financial debt, that would be a skill debt that mm. is owed to the country. Yeah. So my understanding is that it takes it can take between seven to ten years, like for GPs, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what we're offering there is we know we need GPs out in rural areas, mm. and we've not got young people, young doctors going there. Mm. So if young doctors will be incentivized to go out into a rural area as a GP and they work there for five years, the rest of the debt is gone. Makes sense. Um, and if they do stay in an urban area, or if they go on and specialize in certain things then every year they stay and work in New Zealand will be a year that is deducted from the skill debt. Okay, um, if, however, and this is a particular profession that needs to go overseas and get international experience. Mm. So the medical council would have a responsibility if a young doctor needs to go overseas to get experience, then mm. they would find an, an equivalently qualified or suitably qualified person to replace that, that New Zealand doctor here in New Zealand mm -hmm. for the period of time they are away 
and that person's work would also be deducted from that New Zealander's skill debt. That makes sense. All right, because we're buying the skill, we've paid for the skill. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're just trying to get our money our money's worth, e.g., yeah. the taxpayers' money worth from the skill. Yeah. Um, but if somebody was to go overseas, let's say fall madly in love and decide they never want to come back to New Zealand, let's say they'd done five years in an urban area, they had they had um, two years left on their skill debt to pay, mm. they would that would be turned turned into a financial debt, and that they would have sense. to pay that back to the country. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And presumably, the funding of that would it be fair to say that that would possibly be funded longer term by I suppose the people who get the investment in the education mm. up front paying those higher taxes? Um, no, on? it's not based on that at all. Um, what it's based on, the modelling that I've done, is the fact that um, in 2009-2010, the national, this national government paid 2.87% of GDP. Hang on, I'm walking away and coming back to the newspaper. Yeah. Um, they paid, sorry, 2.9% of GDP on tertiary education. Mm-hmm. Now, in the... 15-16 financial year, that amount had dropped to 1.67% of GDP. Mm-hmm. My funding was trying to keep below a 2% cap, right. but at the same time put in these levers to stop, well, to, to minimise around 20% of the current failure rate that's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. 43% of students don't graduate. Mm-hmm. So that's a cost to them, a cost to the taxpayer that's sucking up around about, a, I mean, 20% of that is a billion dollars. Yeah. So there is no high in taxation in here. There's yeah. no higher need for taxation in here. Mm-hmm. This is actually just taking us back up to around about 2% of GDP at $250 billion, um, cutting non-completion and high horizontal shift by about 20%, mm-hmm. um, and just reinvesting that money back into the system. $719 million to run StudyLink. Mm-hmm. So to allow you to borrow, it costs the taxpayer $719 million mm-hmm. per year. We can put that back into education. Mm, yeah. That makes sense. Okay. I don't perhaps want to quiz you on a few specific policy areas. So I suppose being the tertiary education spokesperson, you would be able to speak a little bit about the EFTS cap, um, which is something mm. that NZMSA is feeling quite strongly about at the moment. Yeah. Um, um, without getting into a whole lot of detail about the cap, because our funding model is so completely different, all those conversations... Don't don't sort of ride if we mm. have the opportunity to actually put in our policy, right? Right, because you've got workforce planning that mm. tells us how many um, so how many GPs we need, how many surgeons, how many da and then those those places are 100% fully funded, and then young people compete at point of educational entry to take to become to get into that line of education. Mm-hmm. If there's not enough young people um, seeking to enter that that field that's where the careers and vocational support comes in. Is that because young people don't know that it's an opportunity to them? Is that because they're actually not taking the right um, sort of educational pathways at secondary school? Do we just have a population that's not smart enough to actually go into that level, do you know what I mean, into that field? Mm -hmm. So there is no capping if we need that Mm. skill. Right. Am I making sense? That does make sense. Yeah. So if we need that skill and there is a marketplace for it and a job market mm. for it with a 5 to 10% buffer, yeah. the place will be there. Yeah. Otherwise, we're running into a skill crisis, aren't we? Yeah. So in something like medicine, for instance, where, um, for instance, the first-year places are very heavily competed for, mm. but then there's the second route, which is for graduates and yeah. other people, does it mean that you'd be focusing more on trying to 
shift to having more people getting in up front rather than so many graduates? Um, it's one of those little things that I suppose I'd have to work out in detail with the with the um, tertiary institutions themselves because mm. I'm not a specialist in what you're a specialist in, mm. um, and so I'm sorry I don't I can't answer that specific yeah. question because it's not a specific field of my knowledge. Mm. Um, but again, I suppose if we need the skills and 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 there's there's jobs and employment and a workforce that is required. Mm-hmm. through both of those pathways, then there would be no capping of those pathways. Yeah, yeah. It's so different. Do you know what I mean? Like It's yeah. so different than what's actually happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's a complete rethink that using current circumstances almost aren't transferable. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So it's quite hard to have those conversations. Yeah. In the event that you weren't able to push for this mm-hmm. complete revamp of the system, would you be in favour of abolishing something like an EFTS cap or making exemptions for courses with long study times such as medicine? Yeah, I would. I would certainly. I mean, because we've got to put more sense back into it. Mm. Um, I just don't... I mean, that's why I don't understand the three years free from labour, for example. Mm. It, it affects... It so strongly affects those students, the, the professions that we need that take a much longer time to study. Mm. Um, and I don't understand why you would put a cap on something if we have a workforce requirement so absolutely Mm. but I'd also be pushing if we can't get the whole thing through then I'd be pushing for universal student allowance um, that is not parentally means tested Mm. access again to accommodation supplement Mm. um, yeah and and a lot more scholarships I think Mm. you know first and family those sort of things right that makes sense so and I was about to jump onto the living costs thing so you Mm. I suppose with the universal allowance and stuff like that you want to make it cheaper for students to be able to study and you know, be focused on their studies full time. Yeah, well, the fact that there's no debt now, mm-hmm. so that's the first thing. So, um, having previously, before I was a stay-at-home parent, I was a debt collector. So, that removes a pressure, quite mm-hmm. a large pressure, that is either unconscious or people don't happen to notice it. Um, so, that's the first thing. We've removed the financial debt. Secondly, then, by putting in there, it's around about $200 a week universal student allowance that is mm-hmm. not means-tested, parentally means-tested. We're, hopefully, we've taken a bit of the pressure off um, being able to pay pay for one's living costs and bringing back the the access to the accommodation supplement for people who fit the criteria, mm. e.g., you know, you haven't got enough money, so you need support to actually be able to live in a proper room. Yeah. Then we've removed all these different pressures that mm. we happen to believe downstream is starting to is substantially adding to the um, number of cases that are with anxiety and depression, um, just the stress levers that are happening among our student body. Mm-hmm. Which is having some dire consequences going on. That mm. makes sense. Okay. Um, and the final thing which we want to ask about is the Waikato Medical School proposal. Do you have any mm. inside all thoughts on that? I don't. What's your inside thoughts on that? Um, the concern I think from NZMSA is that we're worried that in something like medicine, where at the moment every graduate is guaranteed a job because obviously mm. the medical degree is a very expensive degree, but yeah. also kind of does one th- prepares you to do one thing very well. Mm. That if it's not done well, you might have an oversupply of medical graduates in the Right, zones. okay. That's one. Well, you see, so I would, if that's the concern, then I would come back down to this workforce planning mm. and com- competition at point of educational entry. So it's not a bums-on-seat model. Yeah. Because I could see that then what you're suggesting is that if there is, um, this person can, or this organisation can open sort of a lower-level tier or allow more people in mm. and to get the pass rates that they need to justify that, 
there may not be the quality. Is that mm. what you're suggesting? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not so much. Yeah. Or yeah, or like what? That. Too many? Com- there's too much competition at the other end. Yeah, too much competition at yeah. the end would be our Yeah, and you see, our, um, the whole purpose of my policy—it's like Finland—is to mm. front end the competition. Yeah. So once you've got the place, yeah. we know we've got a job for you over there, yeah. and that's why you can be committed to to that pathway, and we'll fully fund it. Obviously, also like Finland, though, there has to be an opportunity to divert. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah. at the end of the first year, there's going to be people who aren't going to get, either get through that first mm. year, they're going to have to go back to their careers and transition advisors and mm. um, talk about other pathways. There's going to be people who say, actually, oh, this is just not me, yeah. but I really enjoyed this part of mm. medicine or whatever. Yeah. So same, same. It's more, more looking to the Scandinavian models yeah. than to what has been the US and the UK models. That, makes that would sense. be our view. Yeah. So I suppose speaking about tertiary policy more generally, presumably there would be some universities that wouldn't be such a big fan of um, point mm. of education or entry because it would mean that presumably they might have slightly less student numbers because you'd be more focused yeah. on making sure that graduates have jobs at the end. Yeah, well, that's right. I think it's actually not the universities that have had a problem with it. Okay. I think the, um, the organisations that are going to have the greatest sort of challenge um, is probably going to be the polytechs. Okay. But I was speaking to the head of one of them, one of the large New Zealand polytechs, and I see another role for them. New Zealand First has also said that we're going to take back like all initial teacher training. Mm. So um, we will recreate tra- teachers' training colleges. Mm. Um, we would. Uh, we had. I had a lady at a select committee from UCOL, for example, who was talking about nurses, the mm. nurses' training, and how that's been affected by the privatisation of the tertiary sector. Mm. So um, I think there's a, there's a change. There's probably a change coming to politics, and I think that politics will become niche trainers of mm. very core um, sort of industries um, that we all know that we need, and that mm. PTEs will become the really flexible, smaller, um, sort of more regional provision, and universities will go back to that high research, um, you know, PhDs and so on and so forth, and also be that sort of um, be part of the marketing arm for New Zealand for international students. Right, that makes sense. Because New Zealand First certainly doesn't agree with Labor's um, suggestions around the the large cutting of international student numbers. Interesting, yeah. This is is a four to five billion dollar industry. Yeah. The problem is not the students, the problem is the exploitation that's being done to the students. Mm -hmm. So how do we we get what we want, which is we want to make sure that they're getting a high quality education, we want to make sure that it's export education, not backdoor immigration mm. and we want to make sure that they're not competing for, for jobs with New Zealanders mm. so that we have unemployed New Zealanders that makes um, sense. and I'm working quite a lot with the University of Auckland and with um, um, I, uh, I-10's Independent Tertiary Education New Zealand mm. um, on coming up with some solutions to those that makes sense mm. Okay, I think that's just about all that I had questions on is there anything else that you'd like to add or talk about while you've got the mic still running? I'd be really interested to hear from the students about um, how we don't have enough GPs and why aren't they becoming GPs. Mm. Um, is, that a, is that a financial situation? Is that that they don't want to go, go and live in a rural area? Is that because um, it's not cool to be a GP, the hours are too long? I mean, I'd love to know mm. some of those answers in the future from, from your mm. um, student body yeah. because that will help to influence the way that we can incentivise yeah. When we've identified in workforce planning, we need to be able to incentivise. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you have any questions, 
feel free to email me at mike@nzmsa.org.nz. Next week, I'll be speaking to Julianne Genter, health spokesperson from the Green Party, about what the Green Party stands for. But for now, thank you for listening. Ka kite.